Welcome to High Cheese. It's Friday, March 24th, 2023. And let's go right to the Trump indictment watch. It's now Friday and the grand jury has not convened and it appears they'll reconvene next week, we think. Now, Alan Bragg, the New York State District Attorney, the Soros-backed District Attorney from New York State, remember that New York State is trying to indict Trump, and I'm not sure if it's going all too well for him. And let me just cut right to the chase with what Bragg is trying to do. In 2000, around 2016, right before the 2016 general election for president, Michael Cohen paid off Stormy Daniels, who was claiming that she had an affair with Trump. And Trump knew nothing about it. Trump knew nothing about the payment or any payment to Michael Cohen as a reimbursement for paying Stormy Daniels $130,000, essentially to go away. Now, Michael Cohen, he took out a home equity line of credit and made the payment. So what Bragg is saying that, A, Trump knew about it and reimbursed Michael Cohen, and that payment should have been reflected on the federal ELEC reports, and he failed to do so. And because of that, Bragg wants to indict him. Now, here's the weakness on Bragg's case. A, Trump has already said he knew nothing about it, and he also said that he never had an affair with Stormy Daniels. And again, Stormy Daniels is the stripper slash now porn star who's claimed that she had an affair with Donald Trump. But again, let's get back to the weakness of Bragg's case. Now, it's so simple. And Bragg's stupidity is so is showing through this simplicity. Now, what Bragg is trying to say is that hey, Trump knew about it, and he should have reported the payment he made or any subsequent legal payments he made to Michael Cohen on his federal elect reports because it affected his election. Now, let's get back to the weakness. The weakness is that a hey, Trump denied he ever knowingly made a reimbursement to Michael Cohen. He also knew that he never had an affair with Stormy Daniels. And here's the kicker. Bragg is trying to say that Trump should have reported it on a federal ELEC report. But guess what? Bragg has no jurisdiction over any federal law. He has no right to indict Trump for breaking a federal law. Now, Bragg is trying to use this nuanced law in New York, which says that well, if you fudge business paperwork in order to breaking the law in some other respect, you can get indicted. But that only applies to New York State. It doesn't, it doesn't apply to the federal law. But Bragg is trying to make it apply to federal law. And Trump didn't even break federal law because the federal government looked into this and said there's nothing to see here. So as we all know, Trump raised heck saying, oh, they're going to indict me. We've got to do something. And here comes Michael Cohen's former attorney. Last name's Costello. I forgot what his first name is. He gets invited to the grand jury to testify. Here's the funny thing. Why did they even allow Costello to testify in front of a grand jury? Now, I, I've got my theory on this. And my theory on, on this is that the prosecutors for New York thought that Costello's testimony would be limited because of attorney-client privilege. And they didn't know that Michael Cohen waived his attorney-client privilege 
a long time ago with Costello, which allows him to testify about everything. So Costello comes in, testifies, that says two things. One is that Michael Cohen, who is the key witness for Bragg, told him that he would do anything to stay out of jail or to mitigate any problems he had with the federal government. Because he went to jail for not reporting massive amounts of income and a couple other things also. But that's irrelevant. What's irrelevant that he was headed for jail and he was willing to cut a deal at all costs with the feds. And that deal was to get Donald Trump. But Costello comes out and said, look, he told me that he was under duress. He thought he was going to kill himself and he would do anything to get out of jail, anything. And he also said that, look, I gave you 600 pages of documents that could get Trump off. Where are they? And one of those documents that came out this week is a letter signed by Cohen's attorney at the time to the Federal Elections Commission saying, hey, Donald Trump knew nothing about this. Donald Trump's campaign knew nothing about my payment to Stormy Daniels, and I was never reimbursed for the payment to Stormy Daniels. It's written. It's documented. And it's likely Bragg and his cohorts failed to bring this to the attention of the grand jury. And that's why all heck is breaking loose. And from what I hear is that the grand jury is really ticked off about this. They're like, you know, they're New Yorkers. Hey, don't give me the bums rush. Just give me the truth. I'll make the decision. So again, I've heard that they're quite ticked off about all this sculptory evidence that was not presented to them. Prosecutors can do this. They can omit evidence during a grand jury proceeding. But this is so glaring that they're really ticked off. Now, the other thing I think that's going on behind the scenes is Bragg is getting a lot of pressure from Democrats, believe it or not, because they know his case is so weak. They're going to say, well, what are you doing? You're going to lose. You're going to embarrass yourself. You're going to make Trump stronger. So quite possibly this delay is a way that Bragg can rethink this thing and try to get out of this without too much damage to himself or the Democratic Party. And remember, the federal government looked at this exact case years ago and said there was nothing wrong that Donald Trump or his campaign did to violate federal election law. So that's where we are right now. But I know what Bragg was trying to do. He probably thought he was going to get really cute and all he had to do was get Trump indicted and get him up on the stand and embarrass him. And Oh, and they were going to try to embarrass him. And he, look, he may still get indicted and they will look to embarrass him. At that point, they'd done their job. They got the indictment. And what they were going to do, they were going to try to bring up Stormy Daniels and say, oh, yes, we had an affair. Oh, and before I forget, Trump just released a, an affidavit signed by Stormy Daniels, which said they never had the affair. But they were going to look to embarrass Trump. Stormy Daniels are going to get up there and say, oh, yes, we did this, we did that. And I just hope what I know they were going to try to do to Trump what they did to, I guess, Michael Jackson. Remember Michael Jackson? Well, during one of his proceedings, he was forced to take pictures of his genitals. Were they going to try to do that to Trump? 
Oh, Stormy said she can describe his genitals. Let's take a picture of Trump's genitals. That, that's the kind of thing they plan on doing to Trump. Now, his attorneys will block it and fight it. They most likely will not be able to do things like that. But these Democrats are so crazy. They'll try anything to embarrass Trump. But that's where we are in it right now. Everybody's speculating whether he's going to get indicted or not. Bill O'Reilly came out and said the indictment's not going to happen. And Bragg's just trying to find a way to get out of this. But it's the ongoing attack on Donald Trump that just makes him stronger. And the other thing Bragg did not expect is for Congress to get involved. Jim Jordan, James Comer, they sent a letter out to Bragg saying, hey, look, we're going to call you to the carpet. We want all information surrounding this case, all your emails, and we want to talk, pal. So he doesn't like that. He's going to have to justify it. And it's a great move by Jim Jordan and Comer. Because if they're going to try to bash Trump, the Republicans are going to bash Bragg, the Democrats. And that's the game that has to be played right now. Because these people are desperate. They will do anything to attack Trump. Because that's they know this is the only way that he's going to get beat. And you got to fight fire with fire. So if Bragg's going to do this to Trump, Congress is going to do this to Bragg. And it's a good move. One thing that disappointed me was Ron DeSantis's response to this whole thing. He wasn't strong enough in his support for Trump. Other presidential candidates out there saying, hey, look, this is a dereliction of justice. We should not do this to a former president of the United States. But DeSantis was a little weak on this. And we expected somebody that wants to be president to be a little more bold. And what DeSantis could have done is say, look, if Trump fights extradition from Florida to New York, I will take a look at it because the law allows a governor to take a look at the case when a resident is extradited to another state. Now, Trump came out and said, oh, no, he's, he's just going to surrender. But DeSantis still kind of came out and said, look, whether or not Trump surrenders, I am still going to take a look at this. And if Trump wants to fight the extradition, I will be supportive of him. But DeSantis didn't do this. It was a whole wishy-washy comment about, oh, it's a terrible thing that Bragg did. It's a terrible thing that the Democrats are doing. And then he took a dig at Trump about the whole Stormy Daniels accusation. It just rubbed me the wrong way. I expect more from DeSantis. He's got to be more of a fighter on this. But we shall see. So let's switch to another Trump battleground, which is the special prosecutor that's investigating him for his involvement in J6, as well as the Mar-a-Lago classified documents. This past week, the judge that was presiding over the case, Beryl Howell, just threw a wrench in, into attorney-client privilege. And what she did this week is she is forcing one of Trump's attorneys involved with the documents found in Mar-a-Lago to testify in front of a grand jury, forcing him, piercing attorney-client privilege in what is deemed as highly unusual. She is forcing Evan Corcoran to testify in front of a grand jury regarding the Mar-a-Lago paperwork. 
So she had in her possession certain handwritten notes from Corcoran. And she has determined that Trump may have been misleading his attorneys in this case. And in another additional unusual move, she handed over those notes to the prosecution, to the special counsel, which under normal circumstances would not have happened because the judge, if she had her right mind, would have given Trump's attorney a chance to appeal. So everything we've known about our judicial system, the faith in our judicial system has been thrown out the window by these judges. And Alan Bragg, as it relates to Donald Trump, Additionally, regarding the J6 investigation by the special counsel, she determined today that Trump's chief of staff will also have to testify because he's not subject to executive privilege. And off the top of my head, I forget the name of the chief of staff. But what is going on here when it comes to Donald Trump? These judges are just throwing out the rule of law in order to get Donald Trump. And is this coordinated? This whole brag thing, these decisions that are being made by these judges regarding the special counsel investigating Donald Trump. Is this all coordinated? Now, it was just reported that the Department of Justice has announced that it is going after an additional 1,200 Americans that showed up on J6. And if it is, it's corrupt. Any coordination among judges, prosecutors is part of a corrupt system. And with that said, I want to go to a clip. It highlights what Joe Biden is doing to our judicial system by nominating judges with no knowledge of the Constitution, with no knowledge of the rule of law. And I don't remember, uh, it was maybe a month ago that Biden nominated a judge that could not respond to a question about the Second Amendment or the Fifth Amendment. Really? So with that said, I want to go to a clip. It's, there's a nominee by Biden. His name is Cruz, Judge Cruz. He's currently a magistrate judge. He's being nominated for a higher court. And he's being interviewed, for lack of a better word, by Senator Kennedy from Louisiana. So let's go to this clip, and then we'll come back and discuss. Because it's another incompetent nomination by Biden. And I think this is by design. So let's go to the clip. Okay. Thank you, Judge. Tell me how you analyze a Brady motion. How I analyze a Brady motion? Yes, sir. Uh, Senator, in my uh, four and a half years on the bench, I don't believe I've had the occasion to uh, address a Brady uh, motion in my career. Do you know what a Brady motion is? Uh, Senator... Uh, in my time on the bench, I've not had occasion to address that, and so uh, it's not coming to mind at the moment what a Brady motion is. Um, do you recall the U.S. Supreme Court case, Brady v. Maryland? Uh, I do recall uh, the name of the case, the Senator, yes. And what did it hold? I believe that the uh, Brady case uh, in. Well, Senator, I believe the Brady case involves something regarding the Second Amendment. It is not, I've not had occasion to address that. If that issue were to come before me, uh, I would certainly analyze that Supreme Court precedent uh, and apply it uh, as I would need to to the facts in front of me. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I mean, it's just shocking that Cruz does not know what a Brady motion is. And a Brady motion is fundamental to due process for anyone in the court system. And let me just read a definition of a Brady motion. And it says here, the term Brady comes from the 1963 U.S. Supreme Court case, Brady v. Maryland, 
where the Supreme Court indicated that there is a violation of due process when the prosecutor suppresses evidence favorable to the defendant having requested it. Now, you would think a judge would have a clear understanding of a Brady motion. But Cruz doesn't. And then he goes on to try to guess at it. Oh, maybe it has something to do with the the Second Amendment. Maybe just reading into James Brady. Remember James Brady, the assistant to Ronald Reagan that was shot and paralyzed during an assassination attempt on Reagan, which later led to the Brady Bill, which led to increased handgun control? So he throws out there, he guesses, and he guesses wildly, and he's wrong. And this is the problem with our judges today, many judges, not all of them, but the ones that have been pushed by Obama, the ones that are being pushed by Biden, they want ignorance of the law. There's two things going on. They're either ignorant of the law willfully or they're ignorant of the law because they don't have the mental capacity. Because when you put judges in that position without an understanding of the Constitution, without an understanding of a Brady motion, they get to make it up as they go along. And I think this is what they're doing to Donald Trump right now. And again, if they can do it to Donald Trump, they can do it to you, and they can do it to me. Now, just an update on Manhattan, Alan Bragg. And there was a report in the paper about 20 minutes ago, half hour ago, that a white powder was sent to Alan Bragg with uh, some note on it said, die, Bragg, something along those lines. And quite frankly, you should expect this. And don't be surprised if there's a Jesse Smollett type of incident that happens. Maybe it'll be Bragg's out. Maybe it's his hook to say, I can't pursue this anymore. My life's in danger. Something along those lines. This stuff isn't being sent by a Trump supporter. These are all sent by Democratic operatives, Democratic nut jobs. We saw it yesterday. There was there were three Democratic operatives out there supposedly protesting for Trump, but were acting belligerently. And someone picked up that there was a tattoo on one of the so-called Trumpers. They had an anarchist tattoo on them. And the other one was wearing a mask and they all look like Antifa. So expect something like this in Manhattan. So we shall see. We had something really important that happened this week. And it was totally overlooked by the Biden administration. The leader of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi, visited Russia this week. And they signed an economic and bilateral agreement. And this flies in the face of U.S. policy for so many years to keep Russia and China away from each other. That's been our foreign policy for the longest time. We cannot have China and Russia align. Remember when Richard Nixon visited China? Well, it was not only about creating ties with China, but it was to keep that wedge between Russia and China. And what did Biden's foreign policy do? It made Russia run into the arms of China. And it has to do with Ukraine. By us throwing billions and billions of dollars into the Ukrainian war, creating sanctions on Russia, which quite frankly haven't worked, but we threw Russia into the arms of China. And now we have the second largest economic power 
now aligned with a country that with the largest nuclear capacity. And what does the Biden administration do? They invite Bruce Springsteen this week. Biden meets with Bruce Springsteen, the sellout, the sellout working class hero. And then he meets with the, the cast of some TV show. I never heard of it, couldn't care less. But that, that's what Biden did this week. We have a major geopolitical alignment formalized, and Biden's hosting Springsteen. And remember what I always said, everything's all good until it's not. And this is why. When you have the leadership of the United States ignoring something like this, I can't see any official comment that they had on this. Biden said nothing about it. Biden's hosting Springsteen. Believe you me, we are in dangerous times, and these dangerous times are being propagated by the Biden administration. Remember that. Now, speaking of China, TikTok's CEO testified before Congress this week, and it didn't go too well. Now, what TikTok is, it's, a, it's an app. What people do with the app is they post these really short vignettes, and they become very popular with kids, and uh, many kids are addicted to it. They spend all their time on TikTok without doing anything else. But that's not the only problem. An additional problem that we have with TikTok is its parent company, ByteDance, has extremely close ties to the Chinese Communist government, just like any company in China. They're controlled by the Chinese government, and that's the power that they have. So everything, every corporation in China has ties to the Chinese government and the Chinese military. The Wuhan lab, corporations, they all have ties. And TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is very closely aligned to China, the Chinese Communist Party. And the problem with TikTok is that they are gathering all this information on American citizens. They can monitor where these citizens go, who they are in contact with, other personal information. So along with an ability to manipulate the American public, the Chinese also have the ability to monitor our citizens. So let's go to the clip. It didn't go too well for the CEO. So let's go to the clip and then we'll come back and discuss. With Kathy McMorris Rogers questioning Chu. As I previously referenced, TikTok spied on American journalists. Can you say with 100% certainty that neither ByteDance nor TikTok employees can target other Americans with similar surveillance techniques? Chair Rogers, I first of all disagree with the characterization that is spying. Um, it was an internal investigation. Yes on, or no? Can you do surveillance of other Americans? We, we will protect the U.S. user data and fire it all from all unwanted foreign access. It's a commitment that we've given to the committee. So, so I guess my question is: Are can I want you to? I wanted to hear you say with one hundred percent certainty that neither ByteNest nor TikTok employees can target other Americans with similar surveillance techniques as you did with the journalist. Again, I, I don't disagree with the characterization, characterization is surveillance, and we have given our commitments, Chair Rogers, the four commitments. I think it's our commitment that we will not be influenced by any government. So he was so dodgy, he didn't help himself. He just refused to come out and said, yeah, we can surveil, but we're just not going to call it that. And then he went on later to try to say, oh, well, we keep all the information in the United States and tried to give the appearance that it's safe while it's because the American information is in, in the United States. And 
one of the Congress people, well, asked him, he said, well, can China access this? And he indirectly said, yeah, they can. So again, I hope that this moves in the right direction where we just tick, tick, duck down. There seems to be bipartisan support on this. So let's see what happens. Here's what I also find disturbing. There's a lot of the language that is coming out from the CEO is similar to the language you get when the House tries to talk to the FBI, a lot of the intelligence agencies. They start playing wordsmith. They start wordsmithing. Same thing with the media. Remember when Trump came out early on in his administration, hey, Obama was spying on me. And the media, oh, it wasn't spying. That's not what spying is. They weren't spying. Remember that? Sounds a lot similar to the testimony of TikTok. Well, I guess China wasn't happy with the treatment that the TikTok CEO got from Congress. And let me read an article here. It's from the New York Post. It says, China detained staff, raids office of U.S. due diligence firm Mintz Group. It says, Chinese authorities raided the office of U.S. corporate due diligence firm the Mintz Group in Beijing, and detained five local staff, the company said, stoking concerns among foreign companies in China, just as it hosts an international economic forum. News of the raid and detentions comes as Sino-U.S. relations have spiraled downward following months of diplomatic tensions, including over the U.S. military downing in February of a suspected Chinese spy balloon and a planned U.S. transit next week by the president of Taiwan, the self-governed island China claims his territory. Well, maybe you can add the TikTok testimony to this. Who knows? And who knows what the Minsk group is? Maybe it's a CIA front. You never know today. So we shall see. Okay, let's spend a few minutes on our banking fiasco, our latest crisis created by our institutions. And with that said, the Fed raised interest rates 25 basis points, which is one quarter of 1%. They likely would have raised it 50 basis points, which is one half of 1%, if it wasn't for the banking crisis. And one thing Powell mentioned during his press conference is that he thinks because of the banking crisis, banks will pull back on credit, which will slow the economy. And what he means by pulling back on credit, he means that there may be less loans available to people. So if banks don't loan out money, the economy won't grow, will grow less. And that's what he's banking on. And quite frankly, I think he's taking a risk here because he essentially is putting the fox in charge of the hen house. Because don't forget, where the tire hits the ground, it was these banks and their inability to manage the risk that was placed onto them by Biden's inflation caused the banking uh, crisis. So he's now allowing them to make decisions to not make loans. I quite frankly do not trust the banks to pull back on their credit, particularly in the, in the light of the fact that the fed is pumping huge amounts of cash into these banks through opening the door of the fed funds window, which is where the bank, uh, the fed loans banks money. Just open the doors for them to borrow. And then he's got this entity, special entity created, where banks can borrow money up to a year. 
So they, he's infusing all this money into banks. Meanwhile, he's saying, oh, they're not going to loan money with that? Or are they going to pull back on making loans? I don't think so. Wall Street's going to make money where they think they can. And if it's at the expense of inflation, they're going to do that. So this is why I think that the Fed is taking a risk by thinking that the banks will pull back on credit. Maybe they will. I don't think so. I'll be surprised if they do. So with the, if, if that's the case, inflation will continue to go up. And again, it risks going out of control. Now, also, you had Yellen this week testifying before Congress. And, oh, my gosh, she's so incompetent. She's giving messages. Oh, we're not going to uh, guarantee all bank accounts over $250,000 in deposits. And then she walked it back a little bit. Then she went back the other way. So she clearly is giving mis-message. She should not be there, but she's a hack, and she's going to stay. So that's where we are. We really don't know. I still think that the Fed made a mistake this week. Quite frankly, I, I would have raised it 50 basis points because we do have a lot of money. He is throwing a lot of money at the banks. And again, if his expectation is you're going to throw a lot of money at the banks with the Fed funds window, as well as this special entity created just to bail out these banks and expect them not to loan it out. I think it's foolish. So we shall see. I hope I'm wrong. I don't think I will be, but we shall see because you and I are the one that's going to pay the price here because the decision the Fed made this week is going to increase inflation even more down the road may go up higher. If it doesn't go up high, it's going to stick with us longer because of these decisions. And Wall Street's all on board right now. Yep, stick it to the American people with inflation. Just keep it coming for us. And the Fed is accommodating them. And the other thing I just thought was interesting, you know, the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank really has been, has not been addressed. Now, he's claiming that it's going to be an investigation on this, and we know what happens with these investigations. They're put out and put out and put out until people forget. And then they come out with some watered-down reason why we bailed them out. And the Fed, Treasury, they love to talk about metrics, but all they can talk about with Silicon Valley Bank is, oh, fear of contagion. Well, what's your metrics well, what's the fear of contagion if you did not cover the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank? What were your metrics on this? He's, he's just not saying. No one is saying. They're just, oh, we feel there would have been contagion. And I said in my last episode, I don't think if Silicon Valley Bank was a, a bank in Nebraska or Oklahoma, they would not have gotten this treatment. But you had a lot of Democratic donors out there. You had a lot of high-tech industries with a lot of influence in the Democratic Party. And that's why they got bailed out. And I'm really interested to see in their metrics, in their data. It's always supposed to be about science or data with them. But when push comes to shove, no, it's not. It's about who you know and who you want to take care of. And I got a feeling that that's what's happening with Silicon Valley back. But we shall see. And with that said, you have a 
good week, and I will see you next Saturday. Thank you for listening.